everyone. Welcome to Super Soul Solutions. Hopefully, you got a chance to listen to part one and two. Today's part three continues with U.S. Marine Corps Special Sections, Captain Randy Kramer, an augmented super soldier who did a 30-year tour and is still active. 17 years were with the Mars Defense Force on Forward Station Zebra. 13 years were with the Earth Defense Force and Fleet, protecting Earth and the solar system. Today's show will mostly be focused on his experiences while being a pilot in the Earth Defense Force, protecting all of us. And by the way, for any disbelievers, Captain Kramer reminded me that impersonating a military officer and committing fraud are both felonies. He was given a legal mandate from his Marine Brigadier, General Julian Smythe, to bring truth to forward to civilians. These truths have remained undisclosed for hundreds of years. And I believe one reason why so many people are confused right now and can't make sense of what's going on in the world is largely because most civilians do not have the fuller big picture of what has been a prominent and hidden undercurrent that has affected literally every element of our planetary cultures and society. That prominent undercurrent is the fact that for thousands of years, this planet has always had spacefaring extraterrestrials visiting it, living on it, and inside it. So with that introduction, welcome back again, Randy, and thank you sincerely for offering your precious time to further educate all of us. Oh, thank you for having me, Marilee. It's a pleasure as always. (laughs) I have so much fun with you. So, well, thank you. I'm the cool kid. I'm the fun one to talk to. <laughs> you are. You are. So how about if you start by telling the listeners the intergalactic name for our Earth and solar system and where those names originated. And by the way, we can hear things in your the background on your end, just so you know, rustling papers and all that stuff. Oh, yeah, sorry. No, I was stepping out on the back patio thinking it would be quiet, and then all of a sudden someone's beepy, beepy thing starts going off, and I was like, great, thanks. <laughs> I, I thought I had a nice, quiet outdoor spot here, and apparently not. Okay. Um, so, um, Do you want me to repeat that? No, 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 we're fine. I got you. So okay. we're the Sol system, spelled S-O-L, and we're the planet Terra, T-E-R-R-A. These are both Latin words. Sol means sun, Terra means earth. The reason why that's what we're called, and as far as the intergalactic community is concerned, is because uh, our planet was entered into the intergalactic registry of worlds during Roman times when Latin was our predominant language. So that's why that is. I found that so fascinating. Thank you for sharing that. Yeah, the first time, so, the first time someone explained that to me, too, I was like, no way. That's okay. Yeah, it's a pretty interesting little factoid. Like, oh, okay, yeah. it, it is. I loved it. So yeah. when did the two protective fleets called Solar Warden and Radiant Guardian, if my memory serves me right, comprising the Earth Defense Force, when did they first get created and why? I'm actually not sure I know the answer to that question. Mm, no, I'm oh, not sure that I'm privy to. to yeah, no, no, I'm not. <laughs> I'm not sure I'm privy to a start date for the dates of the fleets. Um, see if I can even guess on that. I would say, well, it, 
probably in the in, in its most tiniest form, that would have had to have been late '60s or early '70s, probably. But now, now that you asked yeah. me that question, I'm going to have to ask somebody to get that information because I've never had a reason to ask that, or no one's ever just offered that up. So that's a, you got me a question no one's ever asked. <laughs> you okay. went a QP I can die. I can die happily now. <laughs> yeah, you got me. Good job. <laughs> Okay, so um, I'd agree with you that, like, where it started accelerating was around those years, too. That makes total Mm -hmm. sense. Well, and I know um, we had had the colonies by the mid-'70s, and there would have to have been some fleet presence, even if in in its tiniest form, for that to occur. So that would be my guesstimate. I could get probably a precise year on you on that for you, but I'm going to have to ask someone, I think. We'll do that for the next show. It's not a biggie. But uh, cool. I thought the Latin and back from Roman times also was also very fascinating. So let's um, move along. So briefly, share for us what an average day <laughs> looks like for you as a pilot flying your Viper-class fighter, and what percentage of your 13 years on the Earth Defense Force were spent actually fighting, and what percentage of the fights did you get seriously harmed that required regeneration on the holograph med beds that we discussed in previous shows. Mm-hmm. All right. So I know you think that's a question. That's like three yeah, or four questions. Three. So, three. all right. So, so let's back that <laughs> okay, up for a second. Say, ask me, say. ask me the first, yeah. Ask me the first question. Let me get to that okay. one. And we'll just do this one at a time. Okay. So what does an average day look like as a pilot flying right. your class fighter? Okay. Um, sure. Uh, get up, have breakfast, um, muster with your commanding officers and your flight group. And then you get what your, uh, flight schedule for the day, which is when you're going to fly patrols at what times. And then you show up for duty when you're going to fly a patrol and patrols basically are the Nautilus, the larger vessel itself going from location to location and then spitting out uh, squadrons of fighters to go do this search pattern and basically just like check this chunk of the lawn to make sure that nobody's, you know, stepping in the lawn where they're not supposed to be. And a typical um, patrol can last mm, three or four hours and then come back. And then there's, you know, um, usually a number of hours in between. There's rest period, you eat something, go back and do it again. And you can have two or three of those a day, depending on the schedule. So usually don't end up flying more than eight hours a day, but sometimes as many as 12 hours a day. Um, and mostly it's really boring. The entire, do you cover the entire solar system? Not at all in little sections, one stop at a time. So it's, and and all the the other vessels in the fleet have an other schedule. So everyone's kind of moving around, stopping, sending some fighters out to do search patterns and, you know, check for anybody who's sneaking past the sensors. And again, if we find anybody who's not supposed to be there, we chase them away basically. So um, it's definitely not... I always referred to it as glorified guard dog duty, really, because you're just kind of wandering around the yard. And if someone comes in the yard, you go, rawr, 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 and you chase them out of the yard nine times out of ten, and they go, oh, and they run away. That's really, that was it. That's basically it. 
It was really so uneventful for the most part. Does chasing them usually work? Does it, I mean, does it work? How, how many times are you actually, you know, hurt or, you know? Oh, at, the, at that job, I don't know. At that job, I don't know that I ever got a serious injury, to be honest with you. Um, okay. It was, um, I mean, at least for the, for the three years that I was just flying and was just a pilot. Um, it was a very, and especially solar system duty, very low risk. Um, we had very few actual engagements, dogfights with anybody. Again, nine times out of ten, it's not a bunch of people. It's one person trying to sneak in, and we're like, hey, there's a bunch of us. There's one of you, and they go, ah, and they run away. So m- most of the time, it's not a fight. Every once in a while, you get into a little kerfuffle about it, but most of the time not, and most of the time the kerfuffles are over pretty quickly, to be honest with you, in our favor. Okay. Well, that's that's good to know. So what this just blends right into the the term you use called jackals. Uh, what percentage of the solar system is now free from problematic groups like that? And describe to people what that term means and what I'm referring to. I guess if we're going to talk about extraterrestrials that we consider to be unfriendly, it's the 95-5 rule. So, you know, 95% of the people we run into, we we can have arrangements that everyone can agree upon and we can engage in trade. There's a 5% that can be troublesome. So I would mm-hmm. say we have a secure solar system in the sense that it's patrolled well. Uh, those that are allowed to come through are travel through traffic lanes. There's a very orderly process for that. And there's very little incursions into that space. I don't think I could give you any kind of a number on how many incursions we have per year that are in any way successful versus those that are unsuccessful. I don't have data on that, but I would suggest that it's a very small number. So saying that we have control of that space to 100%, I don't know that that's fair, but it's 99% something. I mean, it's, it's a, it, we have a very secure presence in our own solar system right now, and there's very little uh, to threaten us that wouldn't have to be very, very large. You know, little people, little bits and, you know, single ships coming in. Now, even, you know, big ships, a single one, no. A fleet would have to come in to be a threat. Okay, well, that's good news. And by jackals, um, I think, if I remember right, Randy, you said they're just a general term for the pirate kind of scavenger species that went to take things off of Earth. Is that true? Yeah, that's a, that's a generic term, you know. Um, mm-hmm. It kind of a kind of a, a shorthand term to describe anybody that's not really a predator, not really prey, but is you know a jackal. They're waiting for an opportunity to come in and tear a leg off and get some of your food or whatever is going on. So yeah, we we mm-hmm. just have to be vigilant about that shit. So that's those are kind of the major ones you're patrolling for, because there's yeah, a lot of. I, rules out there now and they're not supposed to be incur you know there's not supposed to be any incursions right. in or insurgences in right yeah I, I i would say probably the number one thing that we're keeping out of the system right now are spies you know people coming in very small ships in very small groups trying to gather information or see if they can get planet side to do something good or bad or whatever their agenda might be so it's it's sort of individual agents operating from larger organizations and species that are trying to sneak in to do whatever, you know, shenanigans they're up to, 
probably the majority of, of what we're trying to keep out at the moment. Cause like I said, anything sizable is going to show up real fast and we're going to go, uh, the only way to really yeah. sneak in is to be small and to, and to sneak in. So, mm-hmm. okay. Inter- interesting. You know, I, I'm, I'm thinking that the people might love to hear from you what it's like out in the solar system, just when you're flying, what it looks like, is it dark, is it light, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Sure. Um, so I would recommend anyone who ever gets an opportunity to look at the night sky without, without a moon, somewhere clear with a pair of night vision goggles. And the first thing that you notice is that there are all kinds of stars that you can't see with your naked eye. And you're like, oh, crap, there's a whole bunch more stars. <laughs> well, when you're in space, there's even more stars. When there's no atmosphere to block out that light, there's even more visible stars than you would see with a pair of night vision goggles. So it's a very bright sky with a lot of sparkly stars in it. It's very full. Um, it's gorgeous. Let's just say that. You can read by it, to be honest with you. It's bright enough. If if you had no Ooh. power you and you had to read a manual by, you know, starlight through the window, you could do it. You could manage. Um, the Is other it thing dark I, blue, I find, black, or what's the um, general color? The background of space is pretty black, um, but one of the things that you see a lot of are gas clouds. So when we're looking mm. at telescopes, when telescopes are looking into space and it, they see very large gas clouds, they can get images of them and we can say, ooh, look at these gas clouds. What those telescopes won't see are small gas clouds. Well, when you're flying out there, you do see them, you run into them. And it just turns out that there's a lot of small gas clouds all over the place. Um, we had an external temperature and pressure sensor that was giving us a digital readout of the temperature in Kelvins and the pressure in millibars uh, externally. And what I noticed was was not constant. It's not constantly cold. It is not constantly one, like, you know, 0.001, you know, millibars or something. It varies. So you have variable temperature, variable pressure, which means there's weather, there's currents, there's all kinds of things that can happen. It's a very mm. interesting, it's, it's not just this dead, quiet, nothing happening environment. There's actually quite a bit happening um, out there when you start running around and you can see things close up. The other thing yeah. that I found absolutely interesting, so if you've ever again been on a clear night sky where you can see the Milky Way, and you see this band, you know, that goes across the sky. Um, it's super cool. Well, if you're in space, it's not a band. It's a circle it goes all the way around. You're not standing on the side of a sphere where you can't see it going all the way around you. You're seeing it in a place where it goes. Because you're seeing the galaxy, the flat part of the galaxy from the position that we're at. Well, if you're in a position in space, 360 degrees, you can see the whole circle of the Milky Way band as it goes all the way around. And so it literally becomes a horizon point. So people, I know some people say, oh, space, you can't tell up or down. And now horse pucky. The horizon point is the Milky Way. So you can, it's a circle that goes around you. So you know where the horizon is. You level out with the horizon. There's northern stars, southern stars. They're different. 
you learn to identify them at all. There's an up, there's a down, there's a north, there's a south. There's all kinds of up-down direction because you have a horizon point, and it happens to be that circle of the Milky Way that goes all the way around you. And it's pretty impressive. The first time you see that it goes all the way around, it's just really like, oh, wow, right, okay. Yeah, it's, a, it's an interesting perception moment the first time you see it. Well, that's a beautiful, beautiful description. Um, that flows me into, now, I remember you sharing this on a couple of uh, other interviews. Okay, so, and I just, I just love this. Would you be willing to share the awe-inspiring, this is a hint, okay, experience you had of how you were able to locate the Earth after your fighter ship was hit by an electromagnetic pulse weapon and became non-operational drifting through space. Do you, would, you, would you be willing to share well, that? Well, so, yeah, that's fine, but that, that's, it didn't exactly happen that way. So, okay, um, so tell me what happened. What, the experience was um, after running into somebody who'd run into the yard who decided to turn around and run away, but they set off an electromagnetic pulse before they took off so that essentially power was knocked out. We're all floating, you know, sort of dead in space for a few minutes before we get picked up. Well, floating dead in space, everything goes quiet. Uh, Engine goes quiet. All the electronics go quiet. Everything just goes super still and quiet. And what I noticed was I started hearing this noise, um, which I realized wasn't noise. It was music. It was like not hearing it with my ears but I could hear it in my head and it seemed to change depending on where I was staring into space and what I had an, another ET uh, who's a pilot, very experienced pilot tell me it's like oh he said yeah actually you can navigate that way he said if you just listen for the music of the place where you want to go you can find it that way so he said if you're ever lost you have no idea which way to get home like point yourself in the direction where you hear earth music and then go that way and you'll, you'll get there. I was like, holy shit, that's crazy. But yeah, apparently that is so cool. Yeah. Apparently that musical vibration that we're making is literally pumping out into the universe in a way that when you're in space, you can hear psionically somehow. And yeah, it's a thing. The, the stars make music. It's a thing. Well, and planets supposedly you could now, now just to be clear, are you hearing like a symphony and a music or are you hearing the actual earth sounds, people talking? Uh, radio mm, it's like, just, what, what? No, it's just music. Um, and it's a lot of different kinds of sounds that are coming in and it kind of, you really have to focus on one place to sort of not hear a lot of music. So it's kind of like all the radio stations playing at once, but they're not all from Earth at all. Wow. Now you explained one of the things that I also found really interesting of how you created that focus. It seemed to appear, I mean, it seemed to be depending on on like where you focused your Yeah, I I mean, as I was listening, I found myself focusing on listening as closely as I could, which caused me to sort of stare off into one direction. And I think without realizing it by staring off into one direction, I was focusing on one place and then began to hear one music that was more prominent over others. 
And and then mm. and then as I focused, and then as my head turned and it changed, and I was like, oh, that was interesting. And, well, what happens if I stare at that spot? Or what happens if I stare at that spot? And it shifted every time. So I was like, okay, that's interesting and weird. Mm noted in my personal brain notebook for that, but I didn't know what to do with that, but it was interesting. <laughs> Especially when you're you're spinning and dead in the solar system, you know. Well, and, dead, and, and dead, there's... Dead in the water. Yeah, like. <laughs> yeah, well, and there's some truth that, that space can play tricks on your mind, too. So, you know, we're, we're trained to not ever take anything that you may perceive too literally or too seriously, because it just may be background space messing with your brain for a second and making you think weird thoughts or something or see weird things that may not may or may not really be there. So I, I was, I was interested, interested and skeptical of whatever was happening at the time, but, you know, made a note of it. And then when I kind of, when I had a chance to talk to an, another pilot yeah. who's another species explained, Oh no, that's a thing. I was like, Oh cool. That's a thing. All right. Sweet. Good what know. species was this one? Uh, he was Are you able to say? Centauri. It's just, it's, do they look centauri. humanoid? How do they look? Very much oh, so, the... actually. Mm-hmm. Go ahead. They're the sorry, same ones that gave us the holographic medbed. Uh, I don't know that they did. I don't know that they did. Um, but centauri are definitely a humanoid species. I would say they tend to be a little shorter, tend to be dark-haired, not too many blondes among them. Um, I mean, there's some obviously mixing, you know, once people get intergalactic, they're mixing with intergalactic other species all over the place. Um, but they are they tend to be kind of shorter, dark haired. Their ears are a little different. So if one was walking down the street, you could see their ears. You would go like, oh, they got funny ears or where are they? What costume party are they going to? Um, <laughs> but you wouldn't necessarily think right away that it wasn't a a, a, a human Terran person. You might just think they were wearing a costume to a party or dressed up or something. They don't look that different, but what are yeah, their eyes like? Um, they're also uh, concentric circles, like we have, so that mm. you wouldn't really know you wouldn't notice a difference in the eyes, really. Okay, so they are one species for sure that says they actually navigate the solar system. By sound, well, not they that they use do that when they're in trouble, kind of. Thing. No, no, no. It's it's not so much they do so much as he was explaining. It's a thing, and you can. And there's some species who, you know, prefer to navigate that way. But yeah, most everybody uses, you know, computer electronic navigating systems for the most part. But it's okay. it's something you can use in a pinch, more like, you know, yeah, if you ever get lost and confused and you don't know what else to do, you know, you can find your way back doing that. But it's not a preferred <laughs> method for most species to travel that way. You got to be able mm-hmm. to get really focused and really precise to be able to really hear and focus on a specific place. Plus, so that one of the things... Ability. I was just going to say... Um, that's one of the things we'll get to that Randy is, uh, haven't had a chance to listen to part one or two yet, teaching an awesome psionic class that I am signed up for, which will be available soon online. And um, you want to you want to explain briefly what psionics is, and also Shaman powers. <laughs> yeah, yeah, baby. Shaman powers. <laughs> uh, I mean, that's, that's the short version, right? It, it, it's, 
the more complicated version. It's a self-mastery of the brain and the mind and understanding how you're wiring your brain constantly and how you're wiring your brain rewrites your genetics and how practicing the daily discipline of psionic practice will develop those muscles into stronger and stronger outputs, which manifest abilities. So that's the more slightly more long explanation, but the short explanation is that your mind powers. <laughs> okay. But uh, I, you know, what I found was profound is you and I have so many similar passions, like bringing forward the med beds, all of that and the advanced technology. But the second I was, um, Really excited because can you mention that uh, when you have better psionics, how important that is for the human species and their development and how that affects the DNA or could affect the DNA? Oh, well, it just does. Um, so acts of self-propelled evolution, which is what individual psionic self-mastery is, on a social or cultural level, uh, it absolutely accelerates, you know, species evolution. So species who begin to understand both genetics and the ability to influence it through self-action inevitably come to a conclusion, hey, we don't have to just like wing this Darwinism thing. We could actually plot and plan our evolutionary path and choose where we want to be in a thousand years, 10,000 years, a million years, whatever. And so most species, once they get to that place, they're like, yeah, of course we'd want to do that. Why would we want to let random things destroy our civilization or have it develop or evolve in a bad way? Uh, why wouldn't we want to steer that <clears throat> through understanding our own self-development and understanding our evolution and understanding our genetics? Why wouldn't we want to do that? So mm -hmm. at the point that we engage with that as a species, uh, absolutely is a point where we get to accelerate our evolutionary development and accelerate our process that can go way beyond whatever the natural curves are. Which is a major reason to take the class. You know, right? Yeah, well, it, it, well, I mean, it's, it's, if you want to think that big, sure. Um, I, I think that yeah. that's like pebbles, pebbles in a jar. You know, it's, it's, it's going to take a lot of pebbles. And, you know, it's, it's more important to sort of focus on the pebbles than the jar at this point. But eventually you get enough pebbles in the jar and, you know, critical mass and all that stuff happens. But mostly at this point, it's just trying to convince people individually why it's a good idea to for, in, for them personally, uh, even if their personal ambitions or goals are to make the world a better place, you make the world a better place by being a more effective person, by having a stronger mind, by having better memory and all the other things that self-mastery and psionic development can create. But you certainly start to understand that bending matter and energy in your life and your body and the world around you is also part of what's happening. So why wouldn't you sculpt that to a way that's preferable to you? Why wouldn't you sculpt that into the way that makes you happier and uh, less anxious and more grounded as a person? So I think that it doesn't, to me, I don't really care what your motivation is. 
I don't care mm-hmm. if you want to figure out how to use your self-mastery to be a billionaire. I don't care if you want to use your self-mastery to move objects with your mind. I don't care if you want to achieve self-mastery to make the world a better place. I really just care to try and figure out what everybody's personal motivation and says, great, here's a way that you can do that better. Do that. Because mm-hmm. it ulti- ultimately just having more people do that is what matters. Not that they're all doing it a certain way or for the right reasons. It's just more important that people are doing it. So I'm perfectly happy to let people be self-motivated for whatever motivates them uh, to be better, to be better mentally, to be, have their brains work better, to have the ability to project more mental psionic power to bend the things in their reality that they want to uh, for either their own good or for the good of others around them or the world at large. <clears throat> I would just want to see people develop themselves. Obviously, I don't want to people see going out do evil stuff with it, but, you know, a little self-motivated mm-hmm. is not necessarily a bad thing in this case for people. It, if that's what's going to drive them, fine, because if they do it right, the process will create a path of evolution personally anyway, where they're going to have to start dealing with their internal baggage and garbage and actually, you know, come to question and understand things about their motivation and their ethics and their morality and so forth. So just engaging in a true path of development, even if it's for self-centered reasons, can still put someone on a journey of self-awareness and self-analysis that, you know, makes them a better person all in all. So I don't, I don't think wherever anybody starts with that is fine. Start wherever you want with it, whatever your motivation is. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And eventually, eventually, we get enough people in the program that as a species, we can start to move directly, purposefully uh, at a magnified rate because we're putting some collective effort into it. Exactly. Exactly. We have more powerful collective consciousness more directed, mm-hmm. you know, working mm-hmm. together, more beneficent, I hope, et cetera. And we have a much happier life, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And, of course, as you mentioned, with um, uh, the Alphan Centurion, who is psionic, the species you were dealing with and had skirmishes with, the, you know, the giant reptoids and insectoids that you shared on Mars, those guys are totally psionic, right? Oh, yeah. Very, very well developed. So, very well developed. Yeah. Yeah. So we we might as well get up to speed a little bit here. <laughs> you know? Um. Absolutely. No. The, the species I think that we've listened to the most, um, who, when it when it came right down to it, and back in the early days, like fifties and sixties conversations between military intelligence personnel and extraterrestrials that they were working with to develop technologies obviously are directed by tactical conversations and tactical awareness. So a lot of people are thinking about propulsion systems, death rays and time travel, you know, anything that's just sort of um, seems that you can put military force behind it. Things that you can make ships out of better tanks out of better soldiers Mm -hmm. out of, like, which makes sense. They're, that, that's, they're not wrong to think that. Um, mm-hmm. But one of the things that we were encouraged to think was long-term. And yeah. in thinking long-term, long psionic development is a more powerful tool. So if you start a race with someone uh, and they're developing, you know, hard technology and you're focusing on psionic technology, they'll be ahead of the game for the first 10, 20, 30, 40 
50, 60, maybe 70 years. But eventually you catch up and eventually you get ahead. And eventually you demonstrate that the psionic technology is stronger. It's, it's ultimately stronger. Mm-hmm. It's ultimately more powerful. It's ultimately more tactical. It's ultimately uh, a better use of resources. It's a better use of funds. Um, it has, you know, more higher success rates and combat engagements on paper. So it just turns out that it's and this way. And in life, right? Oh, I mean, uh, for people who aren't yeah, military, but, it has all kinds of applications. Yeah. Right, right. But just to be clear, the people who are making those decisions, that wasn't a factor. The factor was how does this make us militarily stronger so that we're not vulnerable to someone who can come along and kick our ass later. And, okay. and, and so the species, I think, who, who encouraged us to think long term um, are why we have good programs. Uh, for developing psionic ability and why we have people who are psionic specialists who are really good at it because ultimately um, it's a tremendous asset for us to have that Mm -hmm. ability and to be able to, and and it it gives us an edge, not just here amongst our own species, but against other species who, to be honest, have some development ability as well, but really don't have the potential that we have, to be honest. So mm-hmm. our ability to surpass some of those people very, very quickly is not only happening, but on the table. So there's some species that would like to think that they have the upper hand psionically on us, but they're, that may not be for long, if at all. So mm-hmm. it's, it's absolutely critically important and just on a tactical level. And, and, and I think there were people who steered us in the right direction. So, yeah, that's a priority mm. for the people that it matters to be a priority for, and I think it will be a deciding factor as we move forward in ways that I'm, I'm not even going to try to predict. But I, th- I think it will be a, a deciding factor many times over the next few decades. Oh, I do too. You know what this brings me to um, is I was really touched by the profound way you decide you define service to self people and service to other people. I was profoundly just, I went, oh, my God, that's the best definition, having to do with short-term and long-term. Do you know what I mean? Um, you know what I'm talking about? Now refresh my memory. Okay, so short-term, if they want short-term rewards or long-term rewards. Oh, sure. Yeah, yeah, with yeah. With the I mean, carrot that, could you share that with people? Because I, I thought that was such a useful way to look at it. Yeah. The people I, that, so, you know. Yeah, no, no. I, I think that that actually, it fairly, it's fairly easy to define um, people who are motoring towards making civilization a better place for everyone forever versus those who want to make a short-term gain and don't care what damage they may do to society or civilization in the process. And it really has the difference to do between short-term profiteering, short-term goaling, and long-term profiteering, long-term goaling. And kind of what we call when we're talking about these types of people who have a lot of money or a certain significant portion of the world, but a tiny percentage, we often think of these people as having a long-term greedy or short-term greedy mentality. And short-term, a short-term greedy mentality is really ultimately self-serving. 
long-term greedy mentality is actually okay because a long-term greedy mentality has to take into account for how everyone else has to benefit so that you can keep doing that thing for a long time. So people who want to mine asteroids need to be long-term greedy. They need to think about how to make an industry work for the next several centuries, not just something that they can make a profit of for the next decade if it's going to work. So it's okay for certain people to have a profit motive. It's totally fine. As long as that motive meshes with a society that is all benefiting from that and not just them benefiting from that. But nine times out of 10, you can break that down from those who have short-term greedy ideals versus those who are talking long-term greedy ideals. Mm-hmm. Which is why the but, corporate model, yeah. the, uh, the, the quarterly model has to go, right? Because all the corporations are basically doing all their math on what matters for profits for the next 90 days. And that's exactly. short-term greedy model. That, that has to change. Versus many of the indigenous people, American Indians, they always talk when, whenever they, you know, say, we need to think about this for our children's, our grandchildren and future generations, you know? It's very yeah. different, rather then where can I get my next fast car, you know, sexy girl, whatever it is, you know, false power well, and thing. Yeah, and that's also going to shift when we have the technology to keep us alive for longer because people mm-hmm. who realize that, oh, wait, I can enjoy all this stuff for centuries? Oh, wait, all of a sudden clean air and water matter. Um, mm-hmm. All of a sudden, you know, environmental degradation matters. All of a sudden deforestation matters all of a sudden whether you have a functioning society a stable society matters because you know if you want to live for the next thousand years and make billions and billions and billions of dollars from the system that you live in well geez it's got to be healthier and more functional for you to be able to do that so we look at the psychological model there and think it's actually a good thing uh, that people will have longer lives because it will make them actually take a more serious interest in long-term benefits. People will won't be just point. looking yeah. at their short-term. Yeah, yeah. People by by the act of knowing that they're going to live for hundreds of years longer, they're going to be like, hey, wait a minute, I got to plan exactly. ahead, and that means and that means making sure that all of this social economic manipulation that I'm also thinking ahead so that, you know, it's mm-hmm. more stable. I, mean, I think we've done a pretty good job of convincing most of those people that a more stable structure, it, they will make more money from than a destabilized structure. So luckily, That's wonderful. I, I, yeah. And, and to be honest, there's just no way of having any kind of disclosure event unless the rich people decide that they're going to cooperate with you. And And so I think the cooperation level is from like, don't you want to make like so much more money? Well, okay, then do this this way so you can make more money. And everybody yeah. can make more money that way. Not just you, but everybody, but you, especially because you mm-hmm. care about you, will make more money. And, I, and I'm kind of okay with selling them that motivation if it gets us over the line and everyone does better. Well, exactly. That's what's needed for transition. It's not about fighting yeah. one another. Right. It's about like, okay, right. listen, let's like work in cooperation. Yeah, exactly. And that's going on as we speak exactly. a lot. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Well, well, I just love that. Yeah, I love that how you define that by, you know, someone who's more preoccupied with short-term gain, gain and someone who's more preoccupied with longer term and thinks of others. It's just a beautiful kind of non-judgmental way of thinking about it. So thank you for sharing that. I love that. So um, what, it's just what smart. Say, I'm just saying it's just smart. 
That's all. It's just smart. It's just it's just a smarter way of doing things. So it's not rocket surgery. Yeah. <laughs> okay. So I want I want you to share um, a really really fun story, even though it probably was terrifying to you. Now we met. You know this is from memory. So tell me if I'm wrong here, because the last uh, show we only had the last three minutes to get into the whole inside earth civilizations that live in the honeycomb caverns and tunnels. Sure. And most, most people don't know about. So would you be willing to describe the solo mission you were sent on to go deep into the earth to get permission from a guardian species there to retrieve probably a classified item or whatever? Would you be uh, willing to share that? I don't know. I, to be honest, the, the, the one thing that I have gotten the most like shitty feedback from people are from me telling mm-hmm. that story and them going, no, that's too much, dude. And so I don't know. Oh, maybe that's, that's too much. Maybe, maybe it's too much for people and maybe I just don't need to tell that story. So I think I'll pass. Oh, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. It's a limited mind. No, no. I, I, well, I, my, my job is to, is to sort of broaden my audience, not narrow my audience. And yeah. so if that's something yeah. that narrows my audience, then maybe I just don't need to bring it up. Well, you could. So. Okay. Fair enough. Um, thank yeah. you for caring. Um, yeah. How about if you talk about or share either ones you personally know or have heard about from your, you know, superiors and other people, different examples of beings and species that live inside our earth. That might, you could do that, right? Sure. Oh yeah. So we definitely have an indigenous reptoid species. We have an indigenous insectoid species. We have um, the, uh, some surface species that went underground at one point. So you have a portion different times uh, when you had like the Lumeria shift, the Atlantis shift, et cetera. Sometimes you have people that go, all right, screw the surface world thing. And they head underground. And so at different times along those patterns, you've had certain people of the advanced civilizations go, all right, screw it. We're going underground and participate in the Agarthan network. So we have some of those people down there too. And then you have people who've moved here from other places who work there. Um, there's thriving industrial uh, trading civilizations that, you know, portions of cities that are part of the Agarthan network that have been functioning and thriving and trading for thousands and thousands of years and continue to do so. So there's, other people from other places who have come to visit. Sometimes they stay and sometimes they live here. Sometimes they meet someone and have kids and stay here just like anywhere else. So mm-hmm. uh, it's a pretty, it, it's, I'd, I'd say it's a pretty cosmopolitan mix in some places, but there's, I'd say probably mostly like the three indigenous Terran species that are like from here that live underground for the most part. And could you describe, that's great, could you describe to the people, just because people always go, well, what do they look like? How tall are they? They love to get pictures of it. Can you describe? Sure. Um, The reptoids, yeah, sure. The reptiles are, uh, we call them raptors. They have kind of a, kind of a longer, narrow snout with a little curvy neck. Um, They, you know, lean a little bit forward. Um, Jurassic Park, but more upright. 
Yeah, yeah a little right? taller, a little taller. I mean, you know, but yeah. you kind of more humanoid. I, the ones that I've yeah, the ones that I've met, I can you know look eye to eye too. So they stand you know about my height. They're you know between you know five, six feet tall or whatever, five and a half, six and a half. Um, mm-hmm. They. Um, what else when I say about them? They do have a tail. Yeah, they have a tail. They have a pretty good sized tail. Mm-hmm. Uh, they can swing it Super pretty hard. Super sharp teeth. Yeah, pretty, yeah, very sharp teeth. Yeah, rippers Run, for sure. Really Carnivores. Fast. Yeah, they're very quick. <laughs> very very quick. Um, the insectoid have species. Abilities, right? Some. That's that's an interesting question about them. I, I would say that as a species, they have. Some people who are way more developed among their people who have really, really specialized abilities there. And I, I, but I would say sort of, if you want to call them an average Joe of their particular uh, civilization might have minimal psionic ability, but nothing that would really even rival some, you know, one a Terran, a surface Terran that's really developed could, you know, outfight them psionically, as far as like average Joe. So at, their average Joe might be a little more developed than our average Joe, but our advanced people okay. are pretty advanced too. All right, and then there's sectoid species you mentioned. They're kind of like they, ants. They're like ant people. Mm-hmm. Ant people. So there's the, yeah. the antids. Yeah, and they're on yeah. the moon and uh, Mars and inside our Earth, right? Uh, yes, from what I understand. It, yeah, interestingly enough, uh, anyone who ever wants to check out like an old movie called The First Men in the Moon, which I believe is from an H.G. Wells story, which is a whole other conversation about how he got all that information. Oh, about yeah, all this you event. betcha. Um, but that's pretty accurate. They're like ant people. So, yeah, they're like, mm-hmm. you know, human-sized ant people. And what are their uh, abilities? Um, they like certainly telepathic. Like fast, things like that. Uh, no, they're okay. not. I don't think they're that necessarily that fast. I mean, they can scurry, but I would I wouldn't say that they're exceptionally quick. Um, are they connected agile. to a high consciousness? Always. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. all those guys are right. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Mm-hmm. I don't. I don't understand. I don't know whether it's matriarchal or patriarchal because it can be either or. Mhm. Yeah, but they're all tuned in together. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Hive mind. Uh, they've been here a long time. Yeah. Okay. And what 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 about the humanoids? Now, Admiral Beard visited Bird. some of the inner birds. Sorry. Right. <laughs> sorry. 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 Admiral Bird um, visited some of the inner Earth too. Correct. Mm-hmm. Correct. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, they're 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 classically tall, blonde, you know, Nordic people as. People often want to refer to it. Nordic is a very generic term for, you know, tall, blonde humanoids. Um, mm-hmm. But they're sort of, they're, they're you know, the, the, they're the, you know, great, 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 great grandchildren of, you know, mostly the Lumerians and the Atlanteans. Lumerians, yeah. Who yeah. went there with the destruction stuff. Uh, is there a general yeah. well, term the, for some, them? Well, some well, some decided to stay okay. on the surface and help build the other civilizations and some went underground. So it wasn't like everyone went under or everybody stayed up. Some people were like, screw this. We're going back underground. And some people were like, we're going to try again. So, mm-hmm. Are they generally referred to the Anshar, as the Anshar or not necessarily? No. More I, like I the Garth and Network. Okay. Yeah, pretty much. 
Okay. And they're all connected by maglev trains, magnetic levitated trains, all that kind of stuff, right? Oh, um, and and tunnels that are like, I mean, like a mile in diameter, so you can fly a pretty big ship through them, um, as well as undersea tunnels that are absolutely huge that you can take really big ships through. So cool. Really, really yeah. cool. Yeah. Okay. Okay, well, thank you, because it's just beautiful, descriptive stories. Uh, we have a little time, just quickly, um, if you wanted to share what a Dyson Sphere is for people. Oh, yeah, so <laughs> Dyson, yeah, Dyson Sphere is an incredible act of engineering that is basically a, uh, think about a giant metal hollow ball that is big enough to go around a star. So say the diameter of this particular sphere, let's just imagine one that goes around our sun that's the same diameter as the orbit of Venus. So, or I know it's elliptical, let's call it a mean, you know, diameter orbit. Um, So the ship itself would be that big around edge to edge would be bigger than the star itself that the actual size of it diameter wise would be bigger than the star itself would be as big as a chunk of the solar system itself to go from one side to the other would be as far as going from you know one part of the orbit of venus around to the other uh but you have the and the star is at the center so the star is a power source for the entire vehicle obviously it's solar powered Um, But it's also such that then you can have an internal habitat on the inside of the sphere that faces the sun. So you can have an entire organic habitat inside this ship, inside this Dyson sphere um, that is powered by the sun. So you you could actually have – you could populate this area with more people – a hundred times probably the number of people that are on planet earth right now, you could probably fit, you know, over a hundred billion people living comfortably with green grass and trees and wind blowing and a star and a sun at the middle, you know, of their existence. uh, That's literally inside a ship that can move, that can go from place to place. So cool. I put on my uh, pre-announcement and uh, the, that I do in the shout out, I put a kind of a, a, not a real picture, but a descriptive picture of a Dyson sphere, as well as your Viper class uh, ship that you fly, right? Sure. Fly Viper class. Yeah. That's what they call them. Yeah. I mean, there, there was a Viper Cobra rattlesnake, but that's, you know, getting into minutia, but it was mostly Vipers. Okay. And it's, so it's literally like this entire planetary, ship that moves mm-hmm. and it's built around a star. Yep. <laughs> totally. Star. Yeah. So 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 our our version of that theorized by this guy named Dyson, you know, so it's called the Dyson sphere. Just turns out that intergalactically other species figured that out way long ago and made it happen and it's a thing. So it wasn't just him that like made it up. He's the first, you know, Karen that thought mm-hmm. about that idea and called it something, but some other species came up with that millions of years ago. Millions and millions of years ago. Now, is there truth that that's up above right now? You know, supposedly, like, some Dyson spheres have been seen 
but I don't know, you know, what what's your experience with that? Have you actually seen one or not, know no. that there is one there? Well, not anywhere near us. The, the one that I saw was very, 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 very far away from here. Um, okay. So there, I have heard of nothing that has come anywhere close to us as far as that's concerned. But there are some – I have heard of some ships that are as big as planets that have, you know, come nearby. That's rumor um, that I've heard. But that that in itself is incredibly fascinating. And I imagine there's some yeah. similar design where there's some, you know – fusion core of some kind that's smaller that's powering the, the the planet sized ship and again maintaining some kind of internal habitat because yeah. that's just the most efficient thing to do with something that big is to make it completely organically self-sustaining mm-hmm. so if you had to i don't know why this thought just popped in if you had to like quickly evacuate most people on a planet right would mm-hmm. you use a dyson yep. sphere for that no. You know, um, as, as a future temporary planet, you know, because you can put so many people in it? Or would you use more like motherships that are the, miles the, long? So, yeah, the, the expense of building or using a Dyson sphere would be tremendous. So, first of all, to build one takes a really, really, really long time. The one species mm-hmm. that I saw, the one that they had built, and asked them how long it takes them to build one, they were like, about 185,000 years your time. Whoa. Oh, yeah, which, which is not that long to them, which is not that long to them. They live yeah. millions of years. And so 185,000 right. years is just sort of like, yeah, it's a good work day. Um, so, but yeah, I mean, but so scale, right? So, so to build something that big, it it is a huge scale operation. It's going to take a really long time, or you got to get one from someone that's already got one. And these are not like things that are just floating around. Like everybody's got an extra giant planetary sphere hanging out somewhere. There's not a lot of them. So I don't think that that would be the most efficient thing. The most efficient thing would be yeah, just lots and lots of landers, mm-hmm. and just and just pick and mm-hmm. just drop and just dropping you know landers and down taking to them to the up and, mother ship. Yeah. and taking them right. up to a bigger transport. Yeah. Mhm. How big was your Nautilus transport that you? Nautilus is about a mile long. Nautilus Nautilus is about a mile long and um, probably about a hundred and. I don't know, maybe 150 yards wide. Mm-hmm. And how many people could it house? Um, I don't know the exact a- number of crew because um, cla- that was classified to me, and it was divided into sections. So the engineering section and the command section, which were forward of the flight deck section, were basically forbidden territory for anybody who worked on the flight deck. So I don't, I've never been to the engineering section. I have no idea how many engineers, how many person, their whole living quarters and everything is back there. It's like, they don't, we don't share living space with those people. The command section is the front section. Same thing. We don't share anything with them other than doors that access to the different sections. So I've been escorted into the command section to talk with officers in the command section, but I otherwise would not be able to just wander into the command section or wander into the engineering section. I'm to understand though, you're talking about a potential of crew crew members that could be several thousand. Yeah. That's what I was thinking. Not to mention tons of ships. Yeah. And it's still, of course, use the standard compartmentalization. 
So you only know your area. That's it. Just do your job. Okay. Mm -hmm. So that is so lovely. And um, I thank you so much, Randy, for sharing your huge bandwidth of knowledge and helping to enlighten and people and and bring forth truth disclosure for the citizens of earth. And um, would you uh, take the time for a couple minutes and tell people where they can find you and where they could have a private session, which is awesome with you, or where, if they're interested in signing up for the oncoming Cyanic class, which I did, um, you know, where they can go for that. Yeah, pretty much all of that is available on my website, which is covertspacecowboy.com. And every every update will all be posted there. When the psionics course is up, that will be posted and links will be there. Anybody who wants to put on the uh, list so that when we are ready to launch the psionics class, we'll make sure you're on the mailer so that we get to send that out to you. We'll let you know. Uh, but pretty much everything I do and everything that is going to be any information about the class and anything else that's going on will be up on my website first. And have you decided how long – a couple of you asked me, um, did, does he have any idea how much he's going to charge and how long it goes for? Or can people just sign up whenever and start whenever they want? You know, they were just curious how it works. Very good question. The answer is a little incomplete. Um, mm-hmm. I've broken down, like I would say, half the course into lesson plans that I think will translate well or well enough into a video course, which is what we're trying to do here. Um, so about the second half of the entire curriculum, I have yet to bust out and really break down the lesson plan. So I haven't really figured out how many lessons total. It could be somewhere okay. between 15 and 20 lessons total is what my guess would be at this point. Um, we're going to compartmentalize them a little bit. So people will be able to get chunks of lessons mm-hmm. uh, for whatever the rate that we're going to decide to do for those are. I think the first four lessons, which is an introductory, very, very basic introductory uh, first four steps, we're going to do for 111 bucks. Um, oh, really? Obvious, really reasonable. Yeah. Well, it's, yeah. like I said, it's going to be almost, you know, maybe almost 20 lessons. So by the time, you know, it, it spans out, you mm-hmm. know, it's, it's going gonna, it's gonna to be a little bit there. But I want to make it fair and reasonable based on what the chunks are and so forth. And because the beginning part, to be honest, it's very basic. It's very rudimentary. It's, it's so, so fundamental and basic that I want everybody to have that information. But I would feel guilty if I charge people a bunch of money for that information. So we're still working okay. on valuing right. for the other courses and how we're going to stack that together. But uh, that's getting sorted out as we speak. And the oh, obviously, once it's all sorted out, someone wants to get the whole package, they'll get a discount. But otherwise, we'll make it. So people can also do steps and go, okay, I did that, I did that. Or if they hit a spot that's like, oh, I don't know if I can go any farther than that. And then instead of having, you know, stacked up a bunch of classes that they don't feel like they're going to get. I want want people to feel like it's manageable and digestible as they go through the process. That's my main thing here is, is very steady integration. All right. Well, that's a that's great. It gives us something to work with. So, every um, our time's up unfortunately. So please join in two weeks for part four, another mind bending show with Randy, and we're going to go into detail about the positive and uplifting new beneficial 
pragmatic technologies that will heal the planet and the people on it. So um, join us then, and until our next adventure, together, onward and upward, my friends. And thanks again, Randy. Thank you, Marilee. Take care. Bye-bye.